0: Uh, but it's going to be a great day as we dive into God's Word together. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word in Matthew chapter 5. We are, after a period of several weeks, the month of December, we took off from our series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And today we dive back into that. So I hope that's good with everybody. We're going to do it whether it's good with us or not. Because it's the only sermon I have prepared for today, believe it or not. Um, and so Matthew chapter 5 begins a short section in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you think of our, our time in the Sermon on the Mount as a series called the Upside Down Kingdom, then we're going to take the next three weeks. This is going to be like a mini-series in that larger series. And we're, exactly, we're going to look at exactly how it is that kingdom citizens... Um, how we find the reign of the king in our lives. And so today, we're going to look at the kingdom and the law. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 21 is where we're going to hang out. That'll be our our, our text for the day. So let's, let's read this together. Jesus, of course, speaking red letters. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, as I do. And Jesus says, continuing what he's been talking about, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just on this passage alone. We're not going to take that kind of time. But before we really begin to discuss this passage, let's discuss a few terms that we read about. I'm going to give you three. Let's start with the word law. What are we talking about when we talk about the law? Because the law is used to describe different things throughout the Scriptures. So the Mosaic law was the covenant means of fellowship between God and his people, Israel. This was to be, if you look all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 10, you look at Psalm chapter 1, you'll see that the law was actually given to be a blessing to God's people. It revealed the nature of God. So the law in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it revealed not only what the people should do, but much more than that, it revealed what God was actually like. That was the main purpose of the law, was to reveal the goodness and the nature of God. His wisdom and His righteous standards based on His character. That's why the law deals so much with justice because justice is one of those things that is at the heart of who God is. So the law put into practice regular occasions of worship, celebration, civic duty, and set the terms for meeting with God. So if we were going to define it here, Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 has in mind that the law is the commands given to Israel through the ministry primarily of Moses. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about law this morning. The commands given to Israel primarily through his servant Moses in the Old Testament. That's the first term. The second term is the Greek word, Catalusi or abolish. Everybody want, you're going to want to say this word because it's a fun word. Catalusi. So we say that with me. One, two, three. Katalusi. You guys are, are brilliant Greek theologians. And you know almost as much Greek as I do. You learn a couple more words and, and you will know as much as I do. I'm, I'm halfway kidding. But Jesus... Did not come to, and the word used here is catalusi. Jesus did not come to destroy, or another word would be nullify or annul the law. In other words, Jesus is not saying, we have to be careful here, Jesus is not saying that the law has no value. Okay? Now, he is saying some specific things about the law as well, but first we're going to talk about what he's not saying. He's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not saying the law has no value. And I think the reason that Jesus makes this statement in the first place, now, I, I mean, think about it. This is an odd statement. Why would a teacher, a Jewish teacher in the first century, a Jewish rabbi, why would he get up in his first message to the people and say, by the way, I did not come to basically destroy the Torah? I mean, doesn't that seem like an odd thing to say? I mean, what if in my first, you know, the first time you heard me preach, I got up and I said, hey, I am not here to burn Bibles. Now, is that true? Well, it is true, I'm not here to burn Bibles. <laughs> But wouldn't you find that a little odd? Like, why is he leading with that? Like, isn't that just, what's the word I'm looking for? Assumed? Because it, it, to me, this seems like one of those truths that should be assumed. But Jesus, of course, he's not here to destroy or abolish his own law. But why did Jesus say this? And it's because frequently throughout his ministry, he has been and he will be accused of this very thing. You think about the way that Jesus operated. Um, Jesus has been accused of not keeping the Sabbath because what does he do on the Sabbath? He heals people on the Sabbath. And so there are certain people that say, you're not honoring the Sabbath because you actually... you. You're, you're, you're working and healing people. Hey, aren't you, you aren't keeping the Sabbath holy. And Jesus looks at these people, these professional religious people, and he says, you guys are experts. But you're experts in missing the point, which is a bad thing to be an expert in. Since you guys are experts at missing the point, but let me be clear, I'm not tearing up the law and saying that the law doesn't have merit. Okay, so we've looked at law, we've looked at abolish. The next word I want us to sort of look at before we start really dive into our text is the word fulfilled. So Jesus has not destroyed the law, but rather he's saying he is fulfilling it or has fulfilled it. The law, remember, is the covenant means of relationship between God and his people, primarily revealed through his Old Testament servant, Moses. The covenant way that people have relationship with a holy God in Jesus is saying, I have come to fill it up. The word fulfill is not used like like a prophecy here. That's part of it, but it's more than that. Jesus goes beyond that with what he's saying here. He's not saying, I've only come to fulfill prophecies. That's a part of his ministry, but I've come to fill up the law. In other words, I have come to make it mean all that it was intended to mean in the first place, to fill it to its full meaning, It is also the law, the individual and collective standards for righteous living. Who attained those but Jesus? The law, the long list of demands and commands. Who was able to keep those? But Jesus, not one Old Testament saint. Which is why we also had the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I came to fill it up, to give it its fullest meaning... Right, and we see in the old, Te- but if we see the Old Testament as less than what it's meant to be, if we look at the Old Testament and only see it as a collection of poems, of prophecies, and rules, then what Jesus is saying here is impossible to understand. But if we see the Old Testament, and within the Old Testament, the Torah, the five books of the Law and if within the Torah we see the specific laws that were given through God's servant Moses, if we see all of that as a part of one story, then we can see what Jesus meant when he said, I have come to fulfill it or fill it up. So how does Jesus fill up the law and give it its truest meaning? Well, first of all, we recognize that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. So when he fulfills the law, he's saying all of those things intentionally pointed to me, my coming and my person in the first place. That the history and the pattern of Israel, when you study the Old Testament, you see sin, captivity, and then what? Deliverance. Sin, Captivity and deliverance is a picture that is repeated over and over and over. And what is Jesus saying about how he fills it up? He is saying that the picture of Israel and the way he delivers them after their sin in captivity is also a picture of who? You and me. So We read ourselves into the story. And part of Jesus filling it up and giving its truest meaning is revealing to us that we are just like they were in the Old Testament, that we are all in need of a Savior who by his grace delivers us from our captivity and our captivity to sin. So we also see, this is what Jesus meant, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament all point to who? Who? Jesus, the final sacrifice, on whose behalf? Yours and mine. Old Testament's talking to Israel. In the New Covenant, Jesus is saying, you, you, you are just like them, and I will be the sacrifice for you, for all who have come before. All of it was pointing to me that it would find its truest meaning in me as the once for all Sacrifice, the ceremonies and the celebrations. When you dive into them, they point to who? Jesus. It's not multiple choice, gink. The answer is the same every time. It points to Jesus. The prophecies have and will have their ultimate fulfilling in Jesus as. Messiah. And all of the righteous demands of the law, which paint a picture of the holiness of God, were met in who? This is what he means when he says, I've come to fulfill it, to fill it up. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, I can't remember if I've, if I've taught on this here yet or not, but one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture takes place in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we're post-resurrection and Jesus, you remember the story, many of you will, that the one thing that Jesus does after the resurrection is the one thing that none of us would have done. One thing that most of us would have done if we were raised back to life is we would have inaugurated the kingdom. Like, I am here, I mean business, I have proved it. Everybody can know now that I am God. But what does Jesus do? He takes a walk. You remember where he was walking to? Somebody tell me, he's walking to Emmaus with a couple of guys who are walking the wrong way, and in that that walk with these 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 disciples, heartbroken disciples, this this this, this verse, Luke chapter twenty four, verse twenty seven, says, in beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill the law, and these guys looking back on the ministry and the life of Jesus says he 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 the whole time we walked said that was about me, that was about me, that was about me, that pointed to me, that pointed to me, that was about me. This is how I fulfilled that. That he said all of the law, all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures, all of the things concerning himself. John chapter 1, 43 through 46 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is when he's calling disciples. He found Philip and said to him, what? What two words? Oh, come on. He's calling disciples. You know the two words. He says, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And watch this. And said to him, speaking to Nathaniel, says, "We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." And Nathaniel says to him, makes tries to make a joke. It's really funny now because it's in the Bible, and he has to live with this for all eternity. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I guarantee you, Jesus has never let him live that down. Like today, in, in, in the kingdom, in heaven, I, I, I would be willing to bet that when Nathaniel comes by, Jesus looks at him and is like, <laughs> did anything good come out? Come on, let me hear you say it, right? Let me hear you say it, okay? And I love the last part. Philip says to Nathaniel, Come and see. And that's the invitation for you for, for all of us today. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a legitimate question. And a wise disciple says, Come and find out for yourself. That's the invitation for each of us today as we look at the words of Jesus as he talks about something that's a little confusing. Come and see for yourself. Come and see what Jesus meant when he said, I, I, I have not come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. When we talk about our relationship to the law and our relationship to the Old Testament, there are two ditches typically that we fall into. I'm going to tell you about those in... A minute, but we've got to understand that all of this, all of the Old Testament points to one person, and his name is Jesus. And for over 2,000 years, God was preparing his people in the Old Testament for the coming of a king who would inaugurate an upside down kingdom that would look different than anything anybody could expect. Now, remember what the Sermon on the Mount is all about it's a preview. Of the new covenant that will come through the cross and through the spirit. You cannot divorce the two. Right? As Baptists, we like to talk about the cross. Rightly so. But we love the cross of Jesus. It is where he made things right so that we could have relationship with God. But relationship with God does not happen if the Spirit does not give life to a person. We cannot talk about the cross without talking about the Spirit. The new covenant is dependent on the work of Jesus on the cross, but also the Holy Spirit bringing life to your dead soul. Both are integral. So let's be people who are not scared of the work of the Holy Spirit, but delight in what the Holy Spirit does when he does unexpected things in our lives and the lives of those around us. Amen? The Sermon on the Mount Starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, with the Beatitudes, the blessings or the congratulations. And Jesus pronounces blessings on people because they're a part of the kingdom. And this is the gospel. God has come to you and has included you and has embraced you, and you embrace him. And by holding on to Jesus, you belong in the kingdom. That's the announcement. By clinging to Jesus, you belong and are a part of this upside-down kingdom, heaven's kingdom. But there's fallout to being in the kingdom. I'm just reminding us, we're just reviewing really quick. There's fallout to being in the kingdom. If you're in the kingdom, Jesus says you will be attacked. Why? Because the enemy will attack the king. But the enemy will also attack you if you belong to the king. You will not be persecuted so that you earn entrance into the kingdom, but you will be persecuted because you have earned entrance into the kingdom. This is what G- he's warning us of what's ahead. So he also says that we're not just soldiers under attack, but we're ambassadors on a mission. This is the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is part that we talked about a few weeks ago. He says, you are salt and you are light. We're our ambassadors on a mission of gracious influence, salt and light in a dark and tasteless, rotting world. And there will be people along the way. This is what Jesus is saying to you. There will be people along the way who will turn from death in the world to life in the kingdom because they see something in you that they lack in themselves. That is what it means to be salt and light. People will turn because of what you have and they, and they don't have. It's not a bad deal, is it? And people will turn from death to life because of what Jesus has already done in you. When we think about our relationship with the law, I told you in a moment ago, there's two ditches that primarily we wind up in that we can fall into. And these two ditches have always been present. We'll demonstrate that through the disciples here in a moment. I, I read this week, and I think it can be helpful, helpful for us to think specifically about two of Jesus' followers as we do this. Ditch number one is legalism. Ditch number one is legalism. Twelve disciples, can you name them? All right, well, let's name them together. The first couple are pretty easy. We've got four guys, two sets of brothers, All right. Simon, Andrew, James, and okay. After John, we have Philip and Bartholomew. Also, called, this is where it gets confusing. Also called, anybody? Nathaniel. Very good. After Nathaniel, We have the guy who wrote and penned the human author of the gospel we're in right now. His name is Matt. We're in Matthew, guys. You should say that with confidence. I think somebody just said Billy. Like, that's not the correct answer. You have Matthew, you have James Alphaeus, you have Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, also called Iscariot. Most of these guys have one name. You think about it, Simon, Andrew, Billy, if you include him. Simon, Andrew, James, John. But a few, only a few of them have descriptors attached to them. One of the Jameses is given the descriptor Alpheus. Why do you think he's given the descriptor Alpheus? Because there's two Jameses. All right, and the, the gospel, I don't know that Jesus went around, you know, and said, all right, there's, there's James number one, oh, and you Alpheus. right? All right. But the gospel writers, so that we would understand who's being talked about here, uh, designates them as James, who's the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus, just so that we do not get confused. One guy is called Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not a title. It most likely comes from the Hebrew words Iscarioth and are turned into Iscariot. So, what does that mean? Judas is the guy from this village called Kerioth. Judith, Judas from now I'm going to trip over my words. Judas from the village of Kerioth. But there's another guy. There's another guy that we read his name, but we haven't talked about why his name. Who would that be? Simon the what? Zealot. Zealot is not a last name. Zealot tells us something about this guy that found himself following after Jesus. The zealots were religious and political party who believed that their zealous interpretation of the law might usher in God's kingdom. The, these guys were so hardcore And they've even been called the first terrorists the world ever saw. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Why were they called that? Because of their propensity to violence to keep the purity of their religion. Now, I I hope someday many of you will travel with me to the Holy Land. Um, And if you do, God willing, we'll go to a place that we weren't able to go to last time because of some tension in the area. But there is a... There is a church. It's one of my favorite places in the Holy Land. There is a church that is built on top of just one of the most phenomenal sites, and it's built on the top of Jacob's Well. And you actually go in this church, and they build a church on top of everything to preserve it, but also to venerate it. Um, and you go into this church, and it's, you go into a lot of the buildings there, and they are so ornate and high church, and I don't, I don't necessarily understand all of that, it's a little foreign to me, but this one church, like I went in and the artwork was is some of the most beautiful art I've ever seen in my life, maybe my favorite. And you go to the front of the room and then there are stairs and you go down the stairs and you go down below and you actually get to the, the well and you can dip water from the same well that Jacob drank out of, from the well that Jesus sat next to and ministered to a woman. One of the paintings, rather it's not a painting, one of the mosaics in the room, because that's what strikes you about this. Beautiful stained glass mosaics, more detailed than anything I'd ever seen. One of the mosaics in the room is, is odd. You see pictures of saints and you see pictures of Jesus doing stuff, playing with children or teaching or what have you. But there's one mosaic that has a picture of a priest Getting his head chopped off with an axe. It just doesn't really fit. And the story is, this is a true story, this only happened, this happened within many of your lifetimes, maybe my lifetime. It happened in the 70s, I don't remember what year. There was a priest who was the priest at this particular church. And people were upset with his ministry. There were some zealous people in the in the area, and they came in, and they martyred this priest with an axe. And we asked the question: What was their persuasion? In other words, what religion? Because we're thinking—I'll be honest with you—we were thinking Muslim extremists had come in and and martyred this priest. And that wasn't the case at all. It was Jews who were zealous for the law came in and did this. That's the picture of the zealots and. The remarkable thing about this church, this is why I would love for you to go. Can you imagine, like, signing up for that job? Like, when they're, like if that goes on indeed and, like, you're looking for a new job, like, new priest. What happened to the last priest? He was killed with an ax right there on the floor. This is a true story. So it took a while to find a priest, but they find a young guy to come in. He's still there. And the, the, the priest that came in, his name is Father Justinos is the artist who has recreated all of the art in that building with mosaics. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, art-wise. That's the picture of a zealot. We, we hear zealot today. We think, oh, somebody's really excited. No, 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 no. A zealot in the Bible was someone who would kill people to keep their religion pure and undefiled. They were known as terrorists because they kept these daggers under their coats. And they would walk up to Roman citizens in a crowd and stab them. Kill them, murder them. Right there on the spot. And Jesus calls one of those guys to come hang out for three years. That's the zealots. Simon the zealot belonged to a group that would have looked at the Old Testament law and said, we got to do everything we can to keep every single one of those to the absolute best of our ability. He would have agreed with the Pharisees on nearly everything, except for one thing. He'd say, you guys don't go far enough. we, we got to go further. The zealots at one point uh, took over Jerusalem. Some of us actually had been. Anybody in the room, raise your hand if you've been to Masada. In Israel. If you've been to Masada? You know this story, but Masada was the, 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 the last place that, that Jews had a stronghold during a war. Who were the Jews that were up there? Zealots. They retreated from Jerusalem, went to this fortress, till the Romans came in and, and they took their own lives before they got there. Zealots. A man who would have so much regard for the law. A legalist. He's somebody who who, who would take what is in the Bible and then take it a step further or a step further after that to make sure that the law wasn't violated in the first place. There are all sorts of things in the Old Testament prohibitions, but the Pharisees would build what they called a fence, a protective fence around it. We don't want to get close to accidentally doing something wrong, so let's build a fence way over here. And then let's say if you even touch our fence, you've sinned. That's a zealot as well. Complete legalist. Now remember, at the time that Jesus is preaching, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the heroes in Israel. People looked up to them and they said, Look, those guys are so good at keeping the law. They tithe even off their herbs. Jesus talked about this. So you guys, when you go to harvest, you're like, you, you know, when you go to pick some stuff because you're going to make a spaghetti sauce later and you're going to pick oregano out of your garden, you make sure that you take 10% of your oregano and you give that to God first. So you guys are so careful about all of these things. The legalistic thing is to, is to, is to take good, God-given laws and principles and go further than God went. That's, that's the legalistic thing to do. And we could come up with all sorts of examples and we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about how legalism has crept into all of our lives at some point, probably. How we take good God-given things and we go a step further because we are driven by fear. We're driven by fear of accidentally messing up. Many people think that the essence of Christianity is personal conscience, following the right rules, even rules that are extra biblical. But oftentimes these ideas are ideas. Paul says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. But I I want to be convinced in my own mind of what you do and what you don't do. And when I put that on you, I've become a legalist. That's one of the ditches we can fall into. Jesus says clearly to the Pharisees over and over and over, you guys are missing the point. You guys are missing the point. He's got a zealot in his group. And what do you think the zealot is thinking, watching Jesus minister the way that Jesus ministered? But you think about this. Someone who has a legalistic bent in their own heart, do they start that way? You think anybody starts off saying, I'm going to come become the world's best legalist? I'm going to become so legalistic that nobody could even look at me and ever think that I've ever done anything wrong in my entire life. No. Most of the time we start with a good desire to honor the Lord and we want to be holy because he's holy. All these things that were taught in the scriptures, no one starts off with the desire to overdo it on the rules, but the legalistic heart somewhere along the way begins to be motivated by Fear. Fear that someone might be more sincere or devout than we are. I don't want to be outdone by another brother or sister in their devotion to the Lord. Fear that someone might see through us and see what's on the inside. So I need to have external rules and things that they don't see what might be on the inside that I'm just a bit of a broken mess as they are. Fear that we're not doing enough for God. Fear that. Of being caught hiding secret sins in our lives. One of the problems with legalism is this you can never rest, there's no joy in it. It's exhausting to live this flavor of religion because it's not spirit led and spirit empowered. And Simon himself would probably started with a good desire to honor the Lord, a good desire to live a holy life, but the fear of not doing enough may have driven him to an absolutely crazy place where he became a zealot and would go out of his way to take someone out if he felt like they weren't doing enough for God. So what is legalism? Legalism is an attempt to gain favor with God or to impress other people by doing certain things or avoiding certain things without regard to the condition of our own hearts before the Lord. It becomes a game of externals. And if there's one thing those of us who have been around a Bible preaching and teaching church for a good bit, it would be this, that God is always concerned with our He is so after your heart this morning. And when the things that we attempt to provide us cover with other people or with Him prevent us from opening up our heart, and that's when they become a detriment to our own spiritual health. So, do you find yourself in that ditch? Do you find yourself walking close to that ditch? then you need to repent of the sin of legalism because legalism is a sin because it is prideful in its nature. Modern-day legalists want to major on the minors. And sometimes as parents, can I just be honest with you, we're so guilty of this as parents because we're so scared that our kids are really going to mess up. And so we sometimes will focus on small-ticket items instead of big-ticket items. The big-ticket item as a parent... To my children, is where's your heart in regards to your Savior? Are you growing in your dependence and your love for Jesus? And as a parent, I need to learn. I need to learn this to focus less on the external things that I can observe as a mom or a dad and to ask the more intriguing, deep questions of where's your heart in regard to Jesus? How's your love for Christ? Are you growing in that? Do you feel yourself more attracted to Jesus because of what he is revealing in you and what he is doing in you? But sometimes we can tolerate, if we're not careful, serious sins like gossip and greed and pride while we tolerate, while we don't tolerate Other sins or other things that we would label as sins. Jesus encounters the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11 and he calls them on the floor for being concerned about minutia and having no concern for the purity of their own hearts before God. Notice that Jesus does not beat around the bush. He's not apologetic for stepping on our toes here. He says, but woe to you Pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and neglect the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Look, he's not saying don't do the other stuff. He's saying don't neglect to let your heart burn for God. And if your heart's not burning for God, get that right before you do anything else. Stop being concerned about externals and neglecting the the condition of your own soul. Powerful for all of us to hear daily. Daily. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without even knowing it. Repentance is the cure for legalism this morning. And it was in Jesus' day as well. That's the first ditch. There's another ditch. There's another ditch over here. We'll call that ditch reductionism. Right? What do we do when we, we, we reduce God's commands to something that, that no longer matters? So Simon, remember, we're talking about the disciples here, using them as sort of a case study for how we get along. Simon the Zealot belonged to a political group that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. He loved certain laws so much that he would have seen men murdered for their blatant disregard of it. So who does Jesus decide to call to be in the group alongside Simon the Zealot? How about a tax collector that worked for the Roman government? Let's see how these two guys get along. And when we go away to camp, let's have them bunk together. Can you, I mean, honestly, just try to imagine the conversations Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector would have walking from place to place. You believe what? You did what? You worked for Who? You stole what? In Jesus. Look at me. Look around the room. We come from such different places. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. Some of us come from religious backgrounds. Some of us don't. Some of us come from Baptist backgrounds. Some of us don't. And Jesus says, I'll take that one choose him, I'll choose her. I want them a part of my family. And the beauty of the body of Christ is he puts us together so that we can learn unity and teach the world that he is real and he matters and he is about life change even today. So here is a man who is actually employed by the Roman government. Matthew is what we'd call a minimalist when it comes to the law. Uh, Who knows if Matthew had even read the law before? I mean, we don't know much less followed it. Let's read our passage again, Matthew five seventeen to 21. Let's just see what Jesus has to say to us again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. And so Matthew might be like, R- really? Really? I- Maybe I was hoping you would, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they do a lot, they tithe off their mint and their dill. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew, he says, you don't get off so easy that the law no longer has any impact on your life. But furthermore, for more than what Jesus is saying to Matthew, what's Jesus saying to you? What's he saying to us this morning? He's confronted our legalism. And now he's confronting our, our, our minimism, our reductionism. Either a total disregard for the law of God or at least the minimizing of it in my life. One ditch is, is legalism that we overdo it. We have no grace for people or ourselves. The other is, man, we don't even need, don't even need God's word anymore. Man, we're so walking by the Spirit, I don't even need to read the Bible. And we minimize what God has to say in his word, and he confronts us. Look at it, just remember the way that Jesus confronted people over their tendency to minimize it. Remember, he makes these statements. You have heard it said. Remember, we said something like this? You have heard it said, Hey, Simon, it's wrong to kill people. You have heard it said, It's wrong to kill people. You have heard it said, Thou shalt not murder. You remember that in the Old Testament? Everybody's like, Yeah, remember that's a big one. But I say unto you, You don't even get to hate people. What? It, you have heard it said. Do not commit, what? Adultery. And then even some guys in the room are like, really? That's in there? And they said, but I say unto you. Don't lust. They're like, what? I, I thought we were getting away from the, the ditch of legalism over here. And Jesus is up the ante times 10 billion. Why? This he's not concerned with the externals. What's he concerned about? Your heart. So what's he saying to us this morning? Same thing he probably says to us every Sunday morning and every day of the week. I just want your heart. And I believe the other things will follow in line when I have your heart. The reality is Jesus confronts both. He confronts us when we lust, but even don't act on our lust. He confronts both these ditches, and Jesus refused to get sucked down into one lane. Saying, You want me to be on your team? No, 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 no. I walk a straight and narrow path that leads to life. And if you want life, you will walk a different way. And that's why we say today we follow in the way of Jesus. It's not legalistic, it's not minimistic. It's just the Jesus way. I don't have a good istic. It's just the Jesus way. It's just the way of Jesus. We walk in the way of Jesus. He was the keeper, uh, the perfect keeper of the law. He's the fulfillment of every promise, every prophecy, every good hope in the Old Testament. He's the perfect keeper of it. He filled all of it because you and I never could. And we must never get to a place in our spiritual journey where we, run, where we commit the sin Of pitting grace against obedience. But we got to understand the distinction. You see, obedience to the law does not earn grace, grace empowers obedience to Jesus. And Jesus does expect his kingdom people to live kingdom lifestyles, but that's only possible because of his spirit living inside of us, giving us grace each and every new day. A pastor friend said in church life, we actually fear that if we don't enforce law keeping, everyone will slip away into lawlessness. And we can at least for a while, listen to this, this just nails us. At least it nails me. He says, and we can at least for a while threaten and cajole people into outward conformity to giving to serving, to evangelism, attendance and worship, sexual abstinence outside of marriage, not divorcing one another, but no amount of threat can enforce an inner conformity of the heart with the real standards of God's law for kingdom living. No law can motivate or empower us. A real change only happens by grace and in response to grace. That's why it's grace upon grace. When the law does its job properly, it shows us how desperate we truly are. It shows me that my own actions, words, and motives, that I stand condemned before a holy God, and it shows me a standard of holiness that I can never hope to attain on my own. And that is the brilliance of the cross of Jesus. The Son of God who did fulfill the law's demands and honored our heavenly Father with every thought and with every action, reaches out to you and I to bring us in so that we are not only adopted into Christianity, but the most beautiful part of it all is we were adopted into His relationship with the Father. It's only by grace. So the answer staying out of this ditch over here of legalism. And the answer to staying out of this ditch over here of minimizing God's word is actually in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says to us. It says therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Man, that's great. That's not the best part. Here's the best part. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we walk that way? Beloved, we look to Jesus. If you want to overdo it on something in your life, overdo it on looking to Jesus. Overdo it on looking at the way he's walking and follow hard after him, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is the way we stay out of the ditches, not by focusing on the ditches, by focusing on Jesus. I don't have a New Year's resolution sermon for you today. challenge, it's the same today as it will be tomorrow and the day after that until the day by the grace and mercy of our Father in heaven that we see his Son face to face. The challenge for you and I is to look to Jesus in this moment and in the next moment and every moment between now and then to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we need you to do a miraculous work in our hearts. Desperately, we need that. We are prone to wander. We wander into legalism, and we wander into minimism. And we need you to do the miraculous work in our lives of helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us, by the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, to keep our eyes fixed to Jesus. And not all the things that vie for our attention around us, inside the church or outside the church, but just Jesus. Oh God, if there are those in our presence today that have never for the first time fixed their eyes on Jesus, then let today be the day that they fix their eyes on Jesus and turn to Him in repentance for trying to do it on their own. Those of us, many of us in the room this morning need to recommit to just looking to you and not to other people. Not to our own way. We've tried that. So many of us have tried that and it doesn't work and it leaves us exhausted. Exhausted. So for many of us today, Lord, encourage our hearts. Release the burdens on us that we can see you and follow you. May the joy of your salvation return to your people today. We agree with the psalmist. It is so dry and we are so thirsty and we are so desperate for you recognizing that only you can fill us up and quench our thirst. We love you. Teach us and help us to love you more. It's in your good and beautiful name we pray, amen.